Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. New Atlas and new scientists have some interesting CRISPR updates for everyone. Mm. Remember CRISPR? Yeah. Yeah. Gene editing? Oh, yeah. It's in full swing, y'all. New Atlas is saying that hamsters that were edited with CRISPR have exhibited unexpected social behavior changes. Ooh. Now, I'm not sure what to expect with a hamster, but regardless. <laughs> Imagine in, like little hamsters at cocktail parties and it's like they've suddenly become very suave. <laughs> Yeah, or the antisocial hamster that just comes in and pees all over everything. I mean, you know there's one, at least in every group. Just saying. But regardless, <laughs> what they did was use CRISPR to block a certain neurochemical signaling pathway. And the key to this study in particular is a hormone known as vasopressin. Hmm. And among other functions, this particular hormone plays a key role in social behaviors, including pair bonding, sexual motivation, cooperation, social communication, dominance, and aggression. Hmm. So those are some pretty big social behaviors. And Hmm. in the past, scientists have administered vasopressin to human children with autism, and they did find some improvements to social behaviors. So for this Mm -hmm. new study, they used CRISPR to genetically engineer hamsters that lacked AVPR1A, which is the receptor that vasopressin binds to. And yeah, it definitely changed their social behaviors, but not the ones they had expected. So they thought if they eliminated vasopressin activity, they thought they would reduce both aggression and social communication. But the opposite happened. Hmm. So the hamsters that had this genetic knockdown showed significantly higher levels of social communication behavior than the unedited control group. And that social behavior was both positive and negative. So the engineered animals had greater aggression, especially towards others of the same sex. Hmm. But the hamsters are not the only ones taking all this CRISPR credit. New scientist has (laughs) reported a gene-edited tomato offers new plant-based source of vitamin D. So if you're worried about the social habits of hamsters, but you're a vegan who's not out in the sun enough, tomatoes are here to the rescue. (laughs) So they've created gene-edited tomatoes that offer this new plant-based source of vitamin D, and the UK government is actually about to change the law to allow such precision-bred food to be sold in supermarkets. And what they're thinking is that just two of these tomatoes a day would address typical deficiencies in vitamin D, which about a billion of us don't get enough of all across the globe. Mm -hmm. Not only that, it would be a vegan alternative to typical vitamin D supplements, which the only existing vegan option for vitamin D supplementation comes from lichen. And yeah, that's pretty expensive. But if you want the inexpensive stuff that is not vegan, it's actually sourced from lanolin and sheep wool, which I did not know. Hmm. So... To make these tomatoes, they were made by editing a gene called SL7DR2, 
in order to stop the plant producing an enzyme that converts provitamin D3 into cholesterol. Comparing with the non-edited tomato plants, there was no effect on growth, development, or yield in the edited plant. So it remains to be seen if these are going to cost more, but my guess is probably yes. Obviously, the people who made them think they sure. shouldn't because the growers could earn extra revenue from the vitamin D-rich leaves and green shoots in order to make the vitamin D supplements. But we still need to know if that kind of production and scale is still going to be feasible. Nevertheless, CRISPR is off and running, y'all. I mean, I guess I didn't I didn't realize that vitamin D wasn't vegan. <laughs> I'm aware that vitamin D comes from the sun and I never really thought about, well, how do you get vitamin D in a pill form? I, I just hadn't yeah. spent a lot of time thinking about, well, here's this oil in a capsule. I'll just swallow it and not mm -hmm. question how they put sunlight in a capsule. <laughs> <laughs> well, what they do is they go to the equator and they lay out each of those capsules with yeah, the yeah. half side open <laughs> and they just capture all that sunlight. And then after, you know, when the sun goes down, they just put the little caps on one by one. And if you swallow one in the dark, you can watch it go down. It glows. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from the New York Times, and it's titled Quantum Internet Inches Closer with Advance in Data Teleportation. Whoa. So it's data. Wait, of is, course, it's teleport. Isn't it always teleport? <laughs> 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 well, you know, data travels. It doesn't necessarily teleport, okay. right? Like it actually goes through a cable that is underneath the ocean All that right. sharks bite and cause lots of problems for us. Like That's when the internet goes down, it's sharks. <laughs> That's true. That's Fair. true. It seems to teleport. It certainly got in that fast, but it could even get faster. Okay. So quantum computing will not reach its potential without help from another technological breakthrough. Call it a quantum internet, a computer network that can send quantum information between distant machines. At the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, a team of physicists has taken a significant step toward this computer network of the future, using a technique called quantum teleportation to send data across three physical locations. Ronald Hansen, the Delft physicist who oversees the team, said, We are now building small quantum networks in the lab, but the idea is to eventually build a quantum internet. Their research, mm. unveiled this week with a paper published in the science journal Nature, demonstrates the power of a phenomenon that Albert Einstein once deemed impossible. Quantum teleportation, what he called a spooky action at a distance, can transfer information <laughs> between locations without actually moving the physical matter that holds it. This technology could profoundly change the way data travels from place to place. It not only moves data between quantum computers, but also does so in such a way that no one can intercept it. This not only means that a quantum computer can solve your problem, but also that it does not know what the problem is. It does <gasps> not work that way today. Google knows oh. what you are running on its servers. Yeah. Wait, does this mean that we can, we have a hope at stripping out a lot of the terrible negative human bias that tends to haunt every AI <laughs> like effort we're trying to make, especially with people? Maybe. I mean, it's not really that sort of privacy or interception. It's more like, you know, there's nobody that can possibly get in the middle of a quantum, say, tunnel between your computer and somebody else's computer because mm -hmm. it's like there's no wire, there's no cable. It's like literally the field of physics itself. Right. Like there's no need for encryption because there's no packet sniffing. There is exactly. no connection to exploit. Oh. Precisely. So you may still have racist facial recognition AIs that just work <laughs> much faster. Right. Um, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. So traditional computers perform calculations by processing bits of information with each bit holding either a one or a zero. 
By harnessing the strange behavior of quantum mechanics, a quantum bit or a qubit can store a combination of one and zero, a little like how a spinning coin holds the tantalizing possibility that it'll turn up either heads or tails when it finally falls flat on the table. As the number of qubits grows, a quantum computer becomes exponentially more powerful. In 2019, Google announced that its machine had reached what scientists call quantum supremacy, which meant it could perform an experimental task that was impossible with traditional computers. Mm. But most experts believe several more years will pass at the very least before a quantum computer can actually do something useful that you can't do with another machine. Part of the challenge is that a qubit breaks, or decoheres, if you read information from it. It becomes an ordinary bit capable of holding only a zero or a one, but not both. But by stringing many qubits together and developing ways of guarding against decoherence, scientists hope to build machines that are both powerful and practical. Ultimately, ideally, these would be joined into networks that can send information between nodes, allowing them to be used from anywhere, much as cloud computing services from the likes of Google and Amazon make processing power widely accessible today. In the Netherlands, Dr. Hansen and his team used what is called a nitrogen vacancy center, a tiny empty space in a synthetic diamond in which electrons can be trapped. The team built three of these quantum systems named Alice, Bob, and Charlie and connected them in a line with strands of optical fiber. The scientists could then entangle these systems by sending individual photons, particles of light, between them. First, the researchers entangled two electrons, one belonging to Alice and the other to Bob. In effect, the electrons were given the same spin, and when they say spin, they're referring to a very specific quantum type of spin that is not a normal orientation as we understand it. But that's the word they use, so just understand it's like a weird magic orientation we don't understand Mm. uh, at our level (laughs) of physics. So (laughs) the researchers could then transfer this quantum state to another qubit, a carbon nucleus, inside Bob's synthetic diamond. Doing so freed up Bob's electron, and researchers could then entangle it with another electron belonging to Charlie. Alice plus Bob glued to Bob plus Charlie. The result? Alice was entangled with Charlie, which allowed data to teleport across all three nodes. In the new experiment, the network nodes were not that far apart, only about 60 feet, but previous experiments have shown that quantum systems can be entangled over longer distances. The hope is that after several more years of research, quantum teleportation will be viable across many miles. Dr. Hansen says, we are now trying to do this outside the lab. All right. Well, (laughs) I mean, the thing that I was just now realizing is like they do have to be next to each other for the initial entanglement. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you ultimately have this, you know, we'll call it a factory where you're entangling things and then you have to transport them to their final location. So if you're imagining an Internet where it's like I have my computer and it's entangled with whatever location. Yes, Mm -hmm. no one can sniff the distance between us. But if I don't have a connection to some new location, some new server opens up, I have to somehow get a truck to drive initially between me and that new location in order to establish that new location. Yeah, I think that's how it works. That's what I'm getting to, because you need to actually start the entanglement process at a central location, like you're saying. Right. So I can actually imagine there being like entanglement centers And instead, we have data centers, uh, like massive entanglement data centers where, you know, hardware goes through, gets entangled with the system and then gets shipped out. Because the other interesting thing is that because of the way entanglement works, you're representing the same data in two or more different locations. So if it changes Mm -hmm. in any location, it changes everywhere simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you really only have a shared set of entangled qubits that you can access. At least that's, you know, my understanding of this. Uh, from a complete layman's reading. And so we might have, say, inside of our routers, little qubit modules where data gets swapped 
through the qubits that are entangled with the various entanglement centers and distributed across the world. It's almost kind of like you're passing a torch around, you know, to keep the fire Mm -hmm. lit. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the data that connects the world. Very like weird and mythic and huge in concept. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Well, (laughs) I'll I'll let them handle that then. I won't be involved. (laughs) I know they were asking me, but I'm going to defer. And (laughs) I know my brain feels too puny for this. I'm so glad Wei was able to grasp it because for me, it was just like, this sounds like a virus. And then this sounds like an Amazon warehouse. And then mm, (laughs) I I can't. Yeah, it's a lot of crazy like sci-fi stuff. The way in which we communicate and do all computing could be completely different. Like that's the implication here. And this is this is how we rapidly get to the point where our generation gets to where our parents are, which is I don't understand this. Do this for me, 12 year old. (laughs) Because, <laughs> like, we are going to get to that point. Some technology will come oh, yeah. along mm-hmm. where we're just like, I can't, and I'm refused. To, I, I'm not capable. I can't wrap my brain around it. I need a child to do it for me, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, you know, sometimes this podcast makes me learn a fact that I just don't know what to do with, and uh, yeah. today is one of those days. From live science, we have. Male mice are terrified of bananas. Here's why. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's fair. It's only fair that cats get cucumbers and mice get bananas. Is that literally thinking of that, like, video series? But those poor mice, they don't stand a chance. They're like a fraction of a banana size. So... The good news is this was an accidental discovery. You know, it didn't take funds away from cancer <laughs> research or anything. <laughs> and it didn't even involve a banana at first. What happened was researchers from McGill University in Quebec were analyzing stress hormones in male mice inside a lab where a bunch of other mice in cages were coming in and out of the room for other studies. And one particularly astute grad student noticed that his mice's stress readings were being skewed by the specific presence of another study's collection of pregnant and lactating female mice. Basically, female mice in general were not a problem. But when a cage of pregnant and lactating mice was in the room, it caused his little bunch of male mice to go nuts. They were really (gasps) unhappy. They were trying to get away. They just did not like it. So they dug a little deeper and the team narrowed it down to a specific chemical in the female mice's urine called N-pental acetate. And the theory they've developed here is that male mice, especially virgin male mice who haven't fathered any babies yet, are known to engage in infanticide, where when they take a new mate, they will often kill any pre-existing babies so as to better ensure the, the survival of their own offspring. So then in response, they think the female mice have evolved this chemical byproduct in their urine that only releases when they're pregnant or lactating that basically signals stay the hell away from me. And tests have shown that the negative response to N-pental acetate is stronger in virgin male mice than it is in older male mice who are less likely to murder existing babies and other female mice aren't affected by it at all. And of course, evolution is an arms race, right? And they also found Mm -hmm. that one of the physiological responses to this chemical in the male mice was an analgesic or pain-relieving effect, meaning that if they did get into a fight with a mom over her pups, it wasn't going to hurt them as much and they were probably going to win. Measured over time, the researchers found that pain resistance in the male mice developed as quickly as five minutes after they smelled N-pental acetate, and it lasted for up to 60 minutes afterward. And so I'm sure you're all wondering, where do the bananas come in? Well, it turns out 
that N-pentyl acetate just so happens to be the chemical compound that makes bananas smell banana-y. Which, you gotta imagine, they didn't just have that knowledge handy, right? They got some printout of compounds, and they were like, huh. And they Googled it, and they were like, huh. (laughs) But, of course, the researchers wanted to find out if the mice would show the same reaction to a source of N-pentyl acetate that didn't come from mouse urine. So they went to the store, and they got some banana oil, and sure enough... (laughs) The little mice virgins got just as nervous and worked up over it as they did when they were faced with the real thing. And like I said, I don't really know what we're supposed to do with this information. Like, I guess if you have a mouse problem, you should smear some banana on your doorstep, but it's only going to work with the male mice and it's just going to bring in the ants. This this sounds like, (laughs) please forgive me, this is going to sound terrible, but perhaps we might glean something to address our incel problem. Right. Maybe bananas work on men, too. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when you consider the visual of women eating bananas and how that does seem to enrage some men or at least attract an unduly (laughs) amount of attention. Uh, This is this. I'm not making this up, right? (laughs) No, I don't think so. And I think, you know, the banana is the classic like sex ed item that you're like putting the contraceptive on. (gasps) I mean, it's a virgin taunt. Maybe that's what the mice are trying to tell us. Don't taunt the virgins. That's right. How dare you ask me to not impregnate this female? Like I need baby mice. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Next link. Next link. Okay. The Guardian has a wonderful piece on the lady without legs or arms, how an artist shattered Victorian ideas about disability. And specifically, we are talking about Sarah Biffin, who was once a fairground attraction, but became an amazing artist later in life and whose talents are now being recognized in a new exhibition. So if you are in the UK, lucky you. I really wish I could see this. In part because the article opens up with a nice little portrait that turns out to be a self-portrait from this artist. And Hmm. it's from 1825. She was born without arms and legs to a farming family in 1784 and measured just 37 inches in height as an adult. She was put on a show, touring fairground attractions, and billed as the limbless wonder, which sounds pretty cruel. But listen, if you're born disabled to a farming family in 1784, you do what you got to do, right? Sure, and she yeah. did. She overcame life's adversities and growing up in rural Somerset, she taught herself to write, she taught herself to paint, to sew, and even use scissors, which boggles my mind. Such was yeah. her extraordinary determination that when her family attended church, she refused to be carried, insisting on rolling down the aisle to their pew, which talk about the brass ovaries on her, right? (laughs) Yeah. Her father worked as a farm laborer, a cobbler and a draper, and she was able to supplement the family income with her annual five pound earnings from her appearances with Emmanuel Duke's traveling fairground. One advertisement proclaimed her great genius in drawing and painting with her mouth, adding, The reader may easily think it is impossible she should be capable of doing what is inserted in this bill, but if she cannot, and even much more, the conductor will forfeit 1,000 guineas. How's that for a bet? (laughs) Some spectators received a specimen of her writing included in the cost of some tickets, and others would pay three guineas for her miniature portraits. One newspaper even reported, quote, so exquisite is that lady's touch that she can with ease tie a knot on a single hair with her tongue. Hmm. Wow. Her fortunes changed after the Earl of Morton sat for his portrait at the fair in London, and he was so impressed with her talent that he paid for her formal training 
with a noted painter named William Marshall Craig. So from 1816, she set herself up as an independent artist and took commissions from nobility and royalty. And she was famous enough to get name-checked even in a couple of Charles Dickens novels. In The Old Curiosity Shop, you can read his writing of, quote, the little lady without arms or legs. But her heart was broken by a scoundrel named William Stephen Wright, who married her only to disappear with her money, leaving her with a small annual allowance. Sadly, she died in 1850, age 66. But a revival of interest in her works has sent all of her pieces skyrocketing. In 2019, one of her self-portrait miniatures sold for about 137,000 pounds. Wow. In most of her self-portraits, you can see she's got a paintbrush sewn into the sleeve of her dress that she would manipulate using both her shoulder and her mouth. You can see some still lifes that she's done, including a study of feathers, which they include a little snippet of in the article, and it's phenomenal. It's delicate, realistic. The level of detail is totally amazing. So if you Hmm. have a chance, if you're into it, otherwise, know her name, Sarah Biffin. That's really neat. I mean, I I agree with that idea of like people talk about like, oh, you know, sideshow freaks. It was totally exploitative. It's like, well, look, they were making money at a time where otherwise they would have been absolutely destitute and on the street. So, you know, they did what they had to. And to a certain degree, they were doing okay for the time, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for the time, I mean, we don't need but... it anymore, but... <laughs> right, yeah, right. Exactly. There are better all options. All those factors. We have some better options, but I will say that there is a nonprofit out there, and this is not SpawnCon at all, but it's called the Hand and Mouth Foot Painting Artists, and it's a collection of disabled artists who paint in the same fashion, and they sell calendars, note cards, and all kinds of things. And they run it kind of as a nonprofit in order to support the artists so that they can make their own living as artists. So little shout out there if you feel like supporting a good cause related to the article. Oh, that's <laughs> neat. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theconversation.com. It's titled, Wild Animals Are Evolving Faster Than Anybody Thought. Hmm. Uh-oh. I wish them the best, man. Like, (laughs) we need a little bit of competition here. (laughs) Yeah. So in adaptive evolution, natural selection causes genetic changes in traits that favor the survival and reproduction of individual organisms. Although Charles Darwin thought the process occurred over geological timescales, we've seen examples of dramatic adaptive evolution over only a handful of generations. Poaching has driven some elephants to lose their tusks, and fish have evolved resistance to toxic chemicals. So, how do we measure how fast adaptive evolution is occurring? According to the Fundamental Theorem of Natural Selection, the amount of genetic difference in fitness to survive and reproduce among individuals across the population also corresponds to the population's rate of adaptive evolution. This fundamental theorem has been known for 90 years, but it's difficult to apply in practice. The study was done in collaboration with 27 research institutions to assemble data from 19 wild populations that have been monitored for long periods of time, some since the 1950s. Together, those data represent about 250,000 animals and 2.6 million hours of fieldwork. The investment may look outrageous, but the data has already been used in thousands of scientific studies and will be used again. Hmm. So the study then uses quantitative genetic models to apply the fundamental theorem to each population. Instead of keeping track of changes in every gene, quantitative genetics uses statistics to capture the net effect emerging from changes in thousands of genes. They also developed a new statistical method that fits the data better than previous models. 
This method captures two key properties of how survival and reproduction are unevenly distributed across populations of the wild. Hmm. First, most individuals die before breeding, meaning there are a lot of entries in the zero offspring column of the lifetime reproduction record. Second, hmm. whereas most breeders have only a few offspring, some have a disproportionately high number, leading to an asymmetric distribution. Among the 19 populations they found, an average genetic change in response to selection was responsible for an 18.5% increase per generation in the ability of individuals to survive and reproduce. This means offspring are an average 18.5% better than their parents. Hmm. To put it another way, an average population could survive an 18.5% deterioration in the quality of its environment as well. This may change if genetic response to selection isn't the only force at play, though. And aside from the article, you know, it's kind of held a little tight because it's done by the authors of the study, and so they don't want to say too much, but they're kind of pointing at much more rapid evolution. And mm -hmm. while Darwinian evolution has been the long-term conceptual model that has prevailed, there seems to be an increasing body of evidence that, in fact, evolution can go forward in massive leaps and jumps mm -hmm. under certain conditions, which I'm not personally informed enough about, but it does happen, which is pretty Let wild. me guess. If it's an extreme condition that forces adaptation, life is going to find a way. Right. The Jeff Goldblum model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, yep. Precisely. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. If you've got 18% variability just under normal circumstances, mm -hmm. every generation is 18% better and nothing else is changing, then yeah, if you put in some extreme situation where you've got intense pressure to survive, then it makes sense that, yeah, you could move a lot more rapidly beyond that if you're killing half your population through some dramatic environmental change. So yeah, I, that tracks. That's amazing. That's very cool that you could get 18% just from having mm -hmm. babies and doing nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the key is to make sure that you're having those babies during a particularly apocalyptic time. That's how you get the superpowers, right? That's right. Don't stop mm -hmm. having babies is the rule. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. This next article is from The Guardian, and it's called Extremely Active Jumping Worms That Can Leap a Foot Raise Alarm in California. Uh, what? yeah, I'm alarmed. Yeah. A jumping worm? Mm-hmm. Wow. The species in question is Amynthus agrestis, also known as the Asian jumping worm, Alabama jumper, or crazy snake worm. Oh. It, <laughs> it is native to East Asia, particularly to Japan and the Korean Peninsula, the worms first made their way to North America inside a variety of landscaping plants that were imported from the region to Wisconsin in 2013, and they have been spreading westward ever since until this past July when they were first spotted in California's Napa Valley. Some fun physical characteristics here. They have a milky white band around a dark body. They can grow up to eight inches long. Nope. Yep. <laughs> they are hermaphrodites that reproduce asexually by forming cocoons on the soil's surface, but they are most distinctive for their, quote, theatrical behavior. <laughs> According to a report by the California Department of Food and Agriculture, they jump and thrash immediately when handled, behaving more like a threatened snake than a worm, sometimes even breaking and shedding their tail when caught. Ooh. And... Because there's always a video, there's a video. No, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually two videos. One's not so bad. It's just a kind of a worm thrashing around pretty aggressively in a guy's hand. But the Ugh. second video 
is a whole swarm of them on a forest floor. And it's honestly a little intimidating. <laughs> like without a little some, intimidating. <laughs> without some context for size, you could easily mistake it for like a giant pit of snakes. And, you know, Ugh. to be clear, eight inches basically is snake-sized okay. anyway. These things are massive. Yeah. Their nickname has snake in it. I'm a yeah. nope. I'm noping yeah. out. <laughs> and dramatic antics aside, they are very much an invasive species, and they're doing a lot of damage because their main food source is the layer of rotting leaf matter that accumulates on a forest floor. And they are so voracious and they multiply so quickly, they can completely clean a whole area down to the dirt in two to five years. And yeah, aside from the thousands of species that live directly within that ecosystem, there are also several species of tree, including maple, red oak and birch that need a dense layer of leaf litter to protect their root system. So it's not an exaggeration to say that these worms can completely take down a hardwood forest in just a handful of years. Wow. So if you have a hardwood forest and you find yourself with a jumping worm problem, experts have several recommended strategies for eliminating them. One option is a mustard pour, which involves soaking the soil with a blend of water and mustard seeds to draw the worms to the surface, and then covering the soil with a sheet of transparent polyethylene for two to three weeks, which will trap the heat underneath until soil temperature has exceeded 104 degrees Fahrenheit for at least three days. They also say that just scooping up the worms and putting them in a plastic bag works too. You know, I mean, as much as they look like snakes, they're not snakes. They don't bite. They can't hurt you. I'm sorry, scooping up a writhing mass of near snake worm into a Ziploc, like, it's just, it was too vivid. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, you do have to make sure that you tie the bag tightly and then put it in direct sunlight for at least 10 minutes before you throw it in the trash, because otherwise they're going to live and you've just given them a free ride to spread further across the area, which is the problem. These guys, like, move. They spread. They're not just crawling around. They go. They travel. The good news is heat really does seem to be a problem for them. All of the methods of killing them involve cooking them, heating them. So (laughs) it seems like climate change is going to be a problem for these guys. They're not going to last in the long run uh, unless they adapt. And they do seem to have a lot of babies. So (laughs) They are definitely on the bandwagon of keep having those babies. And they don't need partners to do it. They're asexual. So (laughs) just terrifying. Next link. Next link. All right, here's the palate cleanser. SciTech Daily reports that MIT scientists have unveiled a secret of stronger metals. Hmm. So we've got some new research that shows what happens when crystalline grains in metal reform at nanometer scales, improving metal properties. Huh. So we already have known how to form metal into specific shapes through casting, machining, forging, and rolling. And what these processes do is affect the size and shapes of the tiny crystalline grains that make up the bulk metal. So to improve strength and toughness by making grains smaller, that's basically been the like holy grail of all of metallurgy in all metals for the past century. Hmm. So the primary method is called recrystallization, in which the metal is deformed and heated, which basically creates a lot of small defects throughout the piece which are highly disordered and all over the place. And when the metal is deformed and heated, all of those defects can spontaneously form the nuclei of new crystals. So you go from this like messy soup of defects to freshly new nucleated crystals. And because they're freshly nucleated, they start very, very small, which leads to a structure with much smaller grains. So what's unique about this new work? 
Well, it's determining how this process takes place at very high speed and the smallest scale. So typical metal forming processes like forging or sheet rolling, those are pretty fast, but this new analysis looks at processes that are, quote, several orders of magnitude faster. So they use a laser to launch metal particles at supersonic speeds. So to say that it happens in the blink of an eye would be an incredible understatement, quote, because you could do thousands of these in the blink of an eye. So it's sort of like you're using a laser to 3D print a sword from across the room in a particle accelerator. (laughs) You know, kind of. Yeah. I mean, because this high speed process is not just a laboratory curiosity. There are industrial processes where things do happen at that speed. So we've already got, like you said, high speed machining, high energy milling of metal powder. And we've even got this method called cold spray for forming coatings. Hmm. And in their experiments, we tried to understand that recrystallization process under those very extreme rates. And because the rates are so high, no one has really been able to dig in there and look systematically at that process before. So they used a laser-based system to shoot 10 micrometer particles at a surface. They could shoot these particles one at a time and really measure how fast they're going and how hard they hit. And so shooting the particles at ever faster speeds, he would then cut them open to see how the grain structure evolved down to the nanometer scale using a variety of sophisticated microscopy techniques at the MIT.nano facility, because you're going to need some of those tools, right? right? And the result was the discovery of what Shu says is now a, quote, novel pathway by which grains were forming down to the nanometer scale. And the new pathway which they called nanotwinning assisted recrystallization. It's a mirror symmetry flip, and you end up getting these stripy patterns where the metal flips its orientation and flips back again, kind of like a herringbone pattern. And the team found that the higher the rate of these impacts, the more of these processes that took place, leading to ever smaller grains as those nanoscale twins broke up into new crystal grains. So it's almost like the cell division process, but laser assisted with metal, right? Mm -hmm. So in these experiments they did using copper, the process of bombarding the surface with these tiny particles at high speed could increase the metal strength about tenfold, which is not a small change in properties, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the result is not surprising because it's an extension of the known effect of hardening that comes from the hammer blows of ordinary forging. So this is Mm -hmm. a sort of hyper-forging type of phenomenon we're talking about, right? So the new findings provide guidance about the degree of deformation needed, how fast deformation takes place, and the temperatures to use for maximum effect for any given specific metals or processing methods. These can be applied right away to real-world metals production. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you're talking about nanometric blacksmithing, basically. Yeah, which is hardcore. Honestly. Yeah, right. Like right. literally hardcore. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so kind of kind of an upper note. I'm sure this won't be used for weapons of mass destruction and instead be used for, you know, totally copacetic, life affirming and ecologically sustaining things. Right. Sure. All that yeah. life affirming metal structure that we use. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're going to have to make these air domes for our failing planet out of something, okay? There you go. Yeah, it'll be life-affirming refugee centers. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, y'all. It's been a a dark week. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Switzerland's ingenious cooling caves, the Antarctic Paradox, and... This 830 million year old crystal might contain life, and we're about to open it. 
So all that and more can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.